0: Welcome to the podcast of Ideas. This is a recording of the debate, The Rise of Toxic Politics, Can We Be Civil?, which took place at the Battle of Ideas Festival on Sunday the 3rd of November 2019.
1: Okay, good morning everyone. Um, Welcome to the uh, first keynote debate of, of Sunday. This debate is called The Rise of Toxic Politics, Can We Be Civil?, uh, I'm I'm Alistair Donald, by the way. I'm I'm the Associate Director of the Academy of Ideas, and for this year, uh, along with Ella Whelan, I've been co-convener of the the festival. Um, Just in terms of situating this uh, discussion, probably some of you know uh, that the word toxic is currently the English Oxford Dictionary's word of the year. And it's very much in recognition, I think, of the vast number of people and things and situations that, uh, that the word toxic is applied to. You know, toxic max- masculinity, the family is toxic, school environments are toxic. It doesn't seem to be anybody or anything that these days the word toxic doesn't have some sort of application to. Troublingly, I think, it's increasingly applied to the political sphere as well and to politics. We've, we've seen uh, this week, just this week, uh, a number of MPs who are standing down in front of, uh, before the general election cite uh, the very toxic nature of politics as as, as the reason why they're they're going to stand down. We've all heard, you know, the kind of toxic, uh, uh, the, the kind of Brexit rage, Trump rage. We've seen families and, and kind of friends divided by these kind of fairly toxic arguments that are going on. We've watched political figures this year being milkshaked. And, you know, the, the three years ago, we had the tragic case of Joe Cox and, and, and that sort of violent end to a life. So toxic, I think, has, has become a very big issue. I think also quite interestingly over the past uh, uh, more recent period, there's, it's also been met with a number of calls for civility and this question of how it is uh, that we can be civil. There's been a number of radio shows and television shows. There's a new book that's just come out that's trying to understand how we can argue and disagree with each other more civilly. So I think this keynote is very much an opportunity both to get to grips with the rise of toxic politics, but also to ask how we can move beyond uh, that stage, how it is that we can be more civil in, in uh, disagreeing with, with each other without kind of diminishing uh, that, the, the very nature of disagreement, which is actually obviously quite an important thing. So, to, uh, to help me uh, try and unpick these issues, I'm going to introduce my panel in uh, the order that they're going to speak. They've got very long biogs uh, on the Battle of Ideas website. I'm going to give you the short version. First up is, is uh, Dr. Deborah Lipstadt, who's Professor of Holocaust Studies at Emory University, at La- Atlanta. She's the author of a number of books, but uh, I'm going to mention Antisemitism Here and Now, which was uh, very much the focus of a discussion in a really excellent session that you did yesterday uh, uh, Deborah, famously, she was the defendant in the Irving versus Penguin UK and Lipstadt trial of 2000, which then became a film. She's uh, also directs the website known as uh, the Hol- Holocaust Denial on Trial. So that's you, Deborah. Welcome Thank and you. thanks for coming across. Uh, for this this debate. Next, uh, on my far left, uh, we'll have Dolan Cummings, who's Associate Fellow uh, at the Academy of Ideas. He's part of the committee that uh, programs this festival. Uh, he's co-founder of a civil liberties organization called the Manifesto Club, and is the author of a book called That, Esten- that Existential Leap, A Crime Story. On my immediate left, uh, we've got Jacob Mashangama, who's the founder and executive director of Justicia, a uh, Copenhagen-based uh, human rights think tank. He's a visiting fellow at the Foundation of Individual Rights and in Education in Washington, and primarily, I think, or certainly for me, because I really like it, um, he's the host and narrator of the clear and present danger, a history of free speech uh, podcast, which has now uh, reached around about thirty episodes, Jake was just saying it 's sort of coming to a conclusion later this year at forty episodes and it 's a brilliantly researched podcast which tells you all about the history of free speech. i highly recommend uh, checking it out uh, then we 'll have uh, james Tooley who 's professor of educational uh, entrepreneurship and Policy at the University of Buckingham. Uh, He conducted groundbreaking research on low-cost private education in developing uh, countries uh, and he co-founded a chain of low-cost schools uh, in places such as Ghana and India. And He's author of uh, a very uh, useful book, I think, called The Beautiful Tree. Finally, on my immediate right, we'll have Tamander Harkness, who's a journalist, writer and broadcaster. Uh, She's the uh, producer, uh, writer, host of an excellent radio series of short 15-minute programs called How to Disagree, which is kind of in many ways, I think, one of the things that instigated and inspired us to do this session. Um, She's also a comedian, uh, and she's author of Big Data, Does Size Matter? Uh, And she's a member of the Royal Statistical Society. So that's Tamandra. So... You probably, those who were around yesterday, kind of know the format. We'll have short introductory remarks. I've asked them to limit it to somewhere around about four uh, to six minutes. I'll be quite strict on the timings. Then we'll come straight out to the audience for questions, uh, and we'll have a kind of back and forth in the conversation. Um, So, Deborah, over to you.
2: Thank you. Uh, First of all, I want to... uh, I don't know if I need to give my bona fides, but I I think in this case, uh, what I'm about to tell you is, to some degree, uh, counterintuitive in the sense that uh, many people would expect I would take a different stance, and that is um, I oppose laws uh, outlawing Holocaust denial. I oppose laws uh, uh, because I think for two reasons. I oppose them because I'm a, a Pretty much a, a fierce a free speech advocate. And I also pose them because I think it turns Holocaust denial into forbidden fruit and makes it sort of, uh, you know, if a, a young person or not so young person, I want to show how open I am, how, uh, you know, how I, what I think to, of, of authority, I'm going to engage in Holocaust denial. It makes it tempting. Uh, having said that, um, and having, as someone who has swum in the sewers of anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial for a very long time. Um, I'm not going to start with big ideas. I'm going to start with smaller ideas. As I was just saying uh, before we began, um, I think big ideas count, certainly, but I think that sometimes uh, for individuals, particularly people who bother to get up and come over here to be here by 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, there's a feeling of what can I do? What can I do um, in this Toxic atmosphere, and though the word may be thrown around a lot, I I think it it is a it is a good uh, a good word. It is the right word, not a good word, but the right word. Um, And first of all, I want to start with with the thing that that when I talk about anti-Semitism, which I've been lecturing about since the book came out, and before that even, but certainly since the book came out, virtually all over the world to all sorts of audiences which is something that's going to sound like it should be on a, a T-shirt, not, a, not an obnoxious T-shirt, some of which I've seen here today, uh, but in a, um, in a honest, you know, it's, it's not, a, not a stupid T-shirt, but, uh, but words matter. There is no terrorist, right or left, irrespective of their faith, who did not begin with words. That does not mean that everybody who uses certain words and uses certain expressions is gonna end up doing violence. Not necessarily so, not, and certainly most of them not. But everyone who does will have begun with words. So I think words matter a lot. Um, I come from a country which right now has as a president someone who delights in using words that are designed to hurt, to denigrate, to demean, uh, to talk about people as you oppose as human scum does nothing to advance a civil conversation. The, you, can, you can say, I don't like them. There are many ways of talking about them, but talking about them as human scum, uh, not only is demeaning, but worse than that, and we have seen that. Um, the New York Times this morning published an extensive analysis, statistical analysis, of his tweets. Um, and how many people, particularly on the far extreme right, such as the guy who, who massacred 11 people at, at uh, Pittsburgh, or the uh, uh, young man who killed, uh, and, and maimed, uh, killed one person and maimed a rabbi in, in Poway in San Diego, um, that there, and, and many other places as well, uh, the, uh, gen, uh, the gentleman, I don't want to call him a gentleman, the man in, in Hala, who butt for a bolt on the door, would have massacred 60 people. There were 60 people in that room praying, you know, it was a guard, but he came in with an automatic weapon and he just would have shot, maybe not 60, maybe only 30 or something like that. Um, that there is a feeling that their actions are supported by the President of the United States. He retweets their tweets, he, he is for us, he is with us, and I'm talking about people on the farthest end of the toxicity um, spectrum. Uh, and and it, is, it is very dangerous. It is dangerous both in terms of the level of the conversation but it also is dangerous um, in what it can produce, in in the way it it makes certain words, certain expressions, certain views, okay. So people walk around saying stupid things, wearing stupid slogans that that are just, uh, at, at the best, they're dumb. At the worst, they are dangerous. And though I use Donald Trump as an example, and, and you should look at some of the things. I mean, just the quotes. You, know, you can forget about the analysis. Just look at the quotes and the way the retweets and what is said about it. But I, I don't mean to limit it to one end of the uh, political spectrum. And as I said yesterday, I'm sorry if those, some of you were there and you heard me, but I'm, I think it bears repeating. That is that most people are adept, very adept at seeing toxicity, seeing hatred, in my case, my, what I study anti-Semitism, on the other side of the political transom from where they reside. So people on the left are very quick to see it on the right. People on the right are very quick to see it on the left, but they each have blinders on. They don't see it right next to them. And the tragedy there, and this is, with this I conclude, is that the, P, the group with which they have the most credibility to change things are those right next to them and not those on the other side. It's a weaponization of anti-Semitism. It's a weaponization of hatred. It's a weaponization of toxicity. Thank you. Excellent, thank you very much.
1: So I think that's very useful, actually, a very useful thing to to, uh, lots of stuff in there to kick us off. Um, Dolan, uh, your thoughts, please.
3: Thanks. Um, I'm going to start by talking mostly about British politics um, and I think the situation which perhaps provides some context for this, but I think similar things are applicable in other other parts of the world, and maybe we can draw that out over the course of the discussion. Um, I would characterize British politics at the moment as being in a crisis of representation. I think that's my big assertion, Um, and the clearest example of that is Brexit. Brexit did not emerge from a representative political movement it could only come about through a referendum that that, that the government didn't actually want because parliament wasn't actually representing a substantial um, feeling in in, in the country. Um, So that's a crisis of representation. And I think more specifically, there's also a crisis of mediation. Um, That is uh, a lack of means to express interests and aspirations in properly political terms. Um, Political terms, I mean depersonalized um, and Clarifying, you know, terms that actually um, make it clear where, where you're going, make it clear what the differences are, differences are between people um, in, 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 in politically practical ways. Um, so, for example, I would suggest that bollocks to Brexit is not a political slogan, really. It's an expression of frustration. It's, it's a very real frustration felt by many people, um, but I don't think it clarifies um, particularly, And I think it's also a worrying precedent that a major political party has made this their kind of official slogan and, and, and worn stupid T-shirts uh, in the European Parliament with this slogan on it. And I worry if it sets a precedent that, you know, what, what happens if there's another Scottish independence referendum? Will the leb dems go for something like, up yours Indy? I mean, I, I, the, 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 the sky's the limit, really. And I, 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 that, that, that's, that is a kind of coarsening of debate, which is different from passion and expressing it, you know, bollocks to because is fine, a couple of Romanos having a pint together, sure, you express that frustration, but I don't think it's particularly helpful. Equally, I don't think it's helpful for, for, for Brexiteers to talk about Romanos and all this kind of stuff. It's, yeah, fine among yourselves, but it's not going to win any converts, it's not going to um, bring the discussion forward. Um, so to give a, conc- a kind of concrete example of, um, of, of how this relates to crisis of representation, um Take the BBC's Question Time programme, um, which is quite controversial at the moment. It's increasingly heated. There's a lot of ding dong between the audience and, and, and the, the panel. But there's a particular um, controversy at the moment that the panels um, and people have added up who's been on it over the past few years. And it is, there's an undoubted bias towards people who were pro-remaining in the EU. Um, and so some people have said, what well, it shows it's institutionally um, biased and so on. Um, But actually I have some sympathy with the BBC um, in putting this together. I think they have a genuine challenge, which is that, yes, Question Time is supposed to be politically representative. It was never supposed to be demographically representative. You know, nobody ever said, why are there three MPs and no plumbers, or two journalists and no dentists, right? We accept that that, that a panel discussion like this is drawn from the commentariat, from politicians, from journalists and writers and so on. And what's happened in recent years is that, that that Section society has has, has developed quite an, a, a, a narrow political view. From the perspective of Brexit, it certainly appears that way. Um, and I think that this, this is a more general problem, that we have a lack of ideas and institutions that kind of transcends demographics, such that you can say, well, I don't like Brexit or whatever it happens to be, but I know that decent people, um, which is to say people like me, hold to it. So I'm not just going to kind of slur um, or characterise them all as being beyond, beyond the pale. And it seems that politics has often come down to, not even demographic in the kind of economic sense, but in more kind of cultural and educational milieu, <coughs> the certain values that you have, so that your political position on various things is more about what kind of person you are than what you believe. It's difficult to separate your political views from who you are, and that makes political debate very heated, and it's very difficult to, to kind of um, reach out across. It's, it, it means that we're looking in terms of people we disagree with what the American um, writer Alan Jacobs has called the repugnant cultural other, um, which is very much, I mean, talking about American politics, uh, as Deborah's been speaking about, but I think is recognizable um, here as well. Um, so that's, that's, I think, that, that, I think, is the, the, the kind of political context behind the rise of toxic politics and why it's been allowed to, to or, or, or why it has emerged. Um, we could discuss that in more detail. Uh, the only thing I would say in, in, in ending is that I don't think that necessarily means that we have to just uh, be more tepid in the way that we discuss things. I are talking to someone before the session, we're talking about whether you should take things personally. I think the question is, what do you mean, take things personally? Um, do you mean take it personally and this, this goes to the core of my being, and the fact that you're questioning my politics is a deep existential insult, or do you mean take it personally as in I'm a political subject who takes this seriously, I'm not just an observer, I have a dog in this fight, um, but I, I can engage on that level and, and, and not kind of be cut to the quick by every kind of insult. And I think we should take politics personally, but not personally.
1: Okay, thank you very much, yeah,
2: though. we should take politics personally, but not personally.
1: A good questions to come good back to, I think. Um, Jacob, mm-hmm. on
4: you go. Yes, thank you very much. Well, uh, it may be that uh, toxicity is, uh, is, is, is a word, a uh, concept that is being thrown around a lot, but it's actually very old. I think it, it, it actually goes back all the way to antiquity, where this idea that certain ideas were so dangerous that they were compared to to, to poison uh, and, and has been used ever since. Let me let me take an example from 1832, where Pope Gregory the 16th wrote about the evil of freedom to publish, and he says, "Is there any sane man who would say poison ought to be distributed, sold, publicly stored, and even drunk because some antidote is available and those who use it may be snatched from death again and again?" Uh, so, so, this was a very, uh, the, the Pope's way of saying that free speech uh, is, is basically uh, akin to allowing um, toxic uh, ideas to to spread throughout society. But I want to go back even uh, earlier to 44 BC when the Roman philosopher and orator Marcus Tullius Cicero gave a speech in the Roman Senate where he accused his, his enemy Mark Anthony of all kinds of debauchery, including male prostitution, fornication, and drunkenness, before finishing with this, is it, it is impossible for a person brought up in such great licentiousness and shamelessness to avoid defiling his entire life, and so from his private life he brought his lewdness and greed into his public relations. So, so what does it say that perhaps the greatest orator and writer of antiquity uh, could stoop to such a level of debate? Um, I think one interpretation is that perhaps there never was a great golden age of civility where everyone followed the Marquis of Queensberry rules for a recent debate. Um, what I do think is a constant throughout history is a very deep concern about the consequences of democratizing the, uh, sphere, the public sphere through the entry of new and previously muted groups who, who are thought to be too crude, simple-minded, and unlearned to be, to be given a voice. Uh, and when the, this democratization of the public sphere coincides with periods of unrest or upheaval, it will often create uh, moral panics or, or, and strong ban- backlash. Uh, let me give a, f- a few historical examples. Uh, so, few people have benefited more from the printing press than the humanist scholar, Erasmus of Rotterdam, but he still complained that printers fill the world with pamphlets and books that are foolish, ignorant, malignant, libelous, mad, impious, and subversive. And such is the flood that even things that might have done some good lose all their goodness." Um, during the English Civil War, um, it was the paper bullets of the press that were accused of, of, the, of the bloodshed. And when in the late 17th century, coffee houses mushroomed here in London that created safe spaces for the sharing and discussion of ideas, news, and gossip among different social classes, Charles II was quite alarmed. He was disturbed by the very evil and dangerous effects of these coffee houses where Diverse false, malicious, and scandalous reports are devised and spread abroad to the defamation of His Majesty's (laughs) government. Well, surely the Enlightenment uh, philosophers must have been the champions of free and and uninhibited public sphere, right? Well, the picture is actually much more complicated. Voltaire never said that, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. What he did say was, it is a great question up to what degree the people, that is nine-tenth of the human race, must be treated as monkeys. So here again we see uh, this dread of uh, the unwashed mass- masses participating in the public sphere, which I think is a recurrent theme that underlies much of the apprehension about social media today. We also saw it in this country when Edmund Burke and, and Tom Paine squared off in, in the great pamphlet war over first principle, Of course, the British government came down very hard on on, uh, Thomas Paine, whose whose Rights of Man became the best-selling book in in publishing history. Uh, It was written uh, in a straightforward and very accessible language for the common man, which allowed workers, uh, artisans, to, to, to to access to arguments that questioned, attacked even the hierarchical order and values of British society. And when Paine was tried for seditious libel, The Attorney General stressed that the rights of man was sneering and contemptuous and intended to make the lower orders of society disaffected to government. Um, And What it made it especially alarming was that it was addressed to that part of the public whose minds cannot be supposed to be conversant with subjects of this sort, the ignorant, the credulous, and the desperate. Um, Of course, Edmund Burke faced no consequences for attacking what he called the swinish multitude nor did the many authors and newspaper columnists who attacked mad tom in writings and and demonizing cartoons so as with debates on brexit and trump the difference between civility and toxicity is very much in the eyes of the beholder Um, the 19th century also saw a wave of reactionary reforms aimed at purging europe of revolutionary spirit Um, and, and and again central to these reforms was the idea of keeping the masses away from the public sphere and and, uh, apart from outright censorship, a preferred method was newspaper taxes and they were actually quite effective. So when Britain lowered the newspaper tax in 1836, the run of newspapers doubled from 25 to 53 million a year in two years. So it seemed that the lower classes would actually like to have a voice even if uh, expressed in less polished terms than those who previously had uh, monopolized access to the public sphere. All this is not to say that we should be indifferent to the very real toxicity that is abound on social media or the daily torrents of hack night, partisanship, bad faith arguments, and bumper crop of strawmen. Um, and certainly the scale and virality of social media um, makes puts it very much in our face. Um, but when we think about whether the shouting matches on Twitter is a sign of inevitable decline and decay. I suggest that we think in historical terms. Would the world have been better if all those books which Erasmus detested had never been printed? If Charles had succeeded in closing down London coffee houses? If Voltaire's idea of limiting uh, enlightenment to the 1% had been maintained? If criticizing hereditary government and established religion was still a crime? Or if newspapers were still taxed so only the well to do could afford them? So seen in that light, I would argue that the excesses, the ugliness, and the rank stupidity that is a permanent feature of the digital age is actually a price well worth paying for living in a society where mostly we can still say what we think. Thank you.
1: you get a real sense from us of why Jacob's podcast is such an interesting list. Um, so, James, over to you.
5: Thank you very much. I, I agree with a lot of what the panelists have said, but as I, I tend not to like agreeing with other panelists, I'll try my own sort of route here. And I would, I would prefer a very, very narrow definition of toxic politics. Um, what, what toxic politics is not in my view, is robust exchange. I don't care if people, I'm a Brexiteer, I don't care if people shout bollocks to Brexit, and I'm quite happy to call them Ramonas. Robust exchanges are fine for politics. Um, we're, if we we're, if we're get passionate about ideas, we're sometimes gonna get angry and let, our, and let loose about ideas. Life is not a debating society. Life is not a philosophy seminar. If we get angry and upset about ideas, in a, you know, speaking to an audience at the battle of ideas, surely that's a good thing. It's great to be upset and angry and um, engaged with ideas. So language is not the issue. What, in my view, what toxic politics, when, poxic, when, when politics becomes toxic, it's when, and if and only if, identity politics is merged with Politics. That is when we start disagreeing with people, not because of we disagree with their views or we don't argue against them, we start talking about, in my case, well, you're just a privileged white male of a certain age. Cicero, I like the allusion to Cicero, the mention of Cicero earlier, he didn't get criticized, perhaps for obvious reasons, but he didn't get criticized for being a, a middle aged white male. That's when politics starts getting toxic. It's not even when violence. I mean, people milkshaking, that was something that was mentioned earlier. People milkshaking is unpleasant. It's actually something that comes under other laws and those people rightfully have been nicked for for, for what they did. I mean, um, with all due respect to the chair here, the violence that Margaret Thatcher experienced four hours after her hotel was bombed in Brighton where colleagues were killed or colleagues' wives were severely maimed. She was in the Houses of Parliament talking, talking respectfully and calmly but engagingly. So it's not violence, it's when politics becomes linked with, the, uh, with identity politics. And the other thing I'd like to say about this, this is not a new phenomenon. Some of you, when, when my bio was read out, thought, well, what's, this guy's in the wrong seminar. He's, he's talking about education, private schools for the poor. What's he doing here? Well, actually, I, I guess I'm here because in another incarnation in my life, I do sometimes write about identity politics. I wrote about it um, perhaps mostly in the you know, 20 years ago, but I still dabble in it. I wrote a book in 2002 called the miseducation of women. It was a, I was having a go at what I saw as feminist uh, claptrap, and I thought I would have a go at it in this book, and you know, I, 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 had, I had academics from the University of Cambridge um, reviewing my book in the Times Higher, saying, we refuse to read this book. <laughs> but would still review it. Uh, uh, There were were two special programs in Women's Hour about my my book, and on on one of them, there was um, uh, uh, Jermaine Greer was there. I was terrified of her. You know, I I didn't sleep for a couple of nights. She was going to have my, she used that word, my bollocks for (laughs) breakfast. Sorry. (laughs) I honestly thought she was going to do that. And um, to her credit, though, Jermaine Greer was not like that. She was not one of these people who, you know, in other things I was doing, people accusing me of being homophobic, sexist, and racist, because I dared criticize research that was talking about race and homosexuality and other things. In those days, of course, transphobic wasn't an issue. You know, it's amazing how quickly that's become an issue. But in those days, I was accused of being racist, homophobic, and sexist, because I dare criticize research methods of people who writing about those issues, not because... I believe I, I am any of those things, but Jermaine Greer was different, and it's interesting that she is one of these people who's being no-platformed, and she's being accused of not being a feminist now. But Jermaine Greer was different, and um, you know, I invited her out for a coffee after the program. I mean, she didn't agree, but I mean, I, I did invite her, and uh, she but she was very gentle with me because she wanted to engage with the ideas. So let let me finish on um, just a couple of things other people said. I loved what Linda was saying. Uh, sorry, Deborah was saying, um, words matter a lot. Um, And you you said in religious discourse, it reminded me, of course, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, very importantly. Um, At the conference yesterday, Catherine Burblesing was on stage talking about um, uh, white privilege. And she said something quite remarkable. She said, there, of course, white privilege. I'm praying to God that I'm going to come back as a white man a white male, and she said, a white tall male, not a white short male. I took deep offense to that. <laughs> any other, any other white short males here? I, I'm it's a deep part of my identity, it's been a, such a struggle in my life. Look at any of the research, short. Short men are so discriminated against, we have to fight really hard, like Napoleon did, have to fight really hard to get noticed, to get any attention. And I was deeply offended that. But will I, will I then get together and, with identity politics and say, you've offended me, you know, and try and get that as a hate crime, try and do those things? Absolutely not. She's absolutely right to do that. Identity politics is, is evil. That's the problem with, with toxic politics. <coughs> And um, I, I would just, I'd just like to say that, you know, Douglas Murray, I mean, in his excellent new book, um, talked about social media. Social media is the problem. I mean, it is the problem because you can, you can reinforce your identity politics in social media. You can get together with your club and say nasty things about the other things. And, of course, it gives us delight. I love it when I see Toby Young on social media laying into some of our enemies. Um, like... Lord Adonis, Andrew Adonis and what Douglas Murray said is absolutely right and I think this is what you're trying to do in your programs Um, I met Lord Adonis outside coming into this event here we were warm, we shook hands, we smiled it was all very pleasant social media is awful, face to face encounters are great um, but don't don't, don't go toxic politics, it's it's not new, it's not, it's, it's only terrible when social identities, identity politics gets into it, thank you.
1: Thanks Jim So, Tamandra.
6: Well, follow that. Um, okay, <clears throat> so I guess I want to bring in some points. The, the, the reason I first wanted to make the series, How to Disagree, um, which went out last year, was precisely that I, I looked around at the state of politics, I mean, radio being what it is, getting on for two years ago, and thought, well, this is terrible. There seem to be two dominant opinions here, one of which is that, uh, or that disagreement is a terrible thing, and that all kind of argument should be stopped because it's just producing loads of loads of tension and hostility. And the other point was that, you know, there's no holds barred and anyone who disagrees with you is is awful and a Nazi and much ruder words and uh, and you should just lay into them on a very personal level. And and I felt that both of those were wrong because disagreement is absolutely fundamental to democracy. And, you know, I kind of... slightly preaching to the choir here, you've all come to a thing called the battle of ideas, so I presume you also all think that disagreement is absolutely vital. Even if we wanted to get away from disagreement, I I think one look at society shows that we do fundamentally disagree on some really profound and important things, and those disagreements are not going to go away if you ignore them. So, disagreement is really important, but I could see that we were, as a society, starting to do it really badly for some of the reasons that my fellow panelists have outlined, that it's become very personal, very hostile, very, very emotional in bad ways. And I say in bad ways because I think there's also this fallacy that rational disagreement is good and emotional disagreement is bad, and also, obviously, that everyone who agrees with you is rational, mm. and everyone who disagrees with you is driven by blind emotion. And, and I think that's very wrong, because if we didn't feel emotions about political positions, and, and I think maybe this is what Dolan was hinting at when he said, let's get personal in the right ways, that if we didn't feel emotional, we would not care either way. Um, and this is... I, I don't quite know how we've got away from understanding this. If, if People who cannot feel emotions for some reason, who've got brain damage, find it possible to make the remotest decision. They can't even decide what to have for lunch because they simply don't care either way. They, they have no feelings uh, the reason why we get heated over politics is because we do feel profoundly attached to one or other vision of the future or we feel angry about the way things are or we feel hopeful about something. These are emotions and that's what drives us as humans and they're good things. Uh, the problem is when we, we allow the feeling of an emotion to be enough to us uh, and don't also engage reason at the same time. But, that, but there is often this perception that uh, you, your own emotions are actually just based on reason and your opponent's emotions are signs that they are stupid and easily led and easily manipulated and their buttons can be pressed by by words, among other things. And, and this, I think, actually it picks up very, again, on what my fellow panelists have said about how much of the concern about language is driven by a fear of the masses in politics and and in a sense, a century on from... I mean, a century ago, still all UK adults didn't have the vote, but, you know, all, all men did and women with a certain amount of property did. And, and that entry of the masses into politics, into having a real political power and a political voice, I think is still not quite being accepted and come to terms with. And so this idea that by hearing certain words, people may be incited to irrational rage and even violence... Comes from that. Comes from that perception that there are people who are just not equipped to hear words and, and reason, and uh, and and take them on board in a in a reasonable way. Uh, you know, unlike whoever it is that's that's talking usually. And it, I've been trying to see what what has changed in politics from say I don't know the the, the 1980s uh, to now when. I mean, it, it, during the, the mid-1980s, when the, there was the big miners' strike in the UK, society was very divided politically, and there was a real sense of having to take sides. There was actual physical violence. Uh, it, was, it was a profound political rift, and yet it didn't feel the same as today because it was within a structure that I think everybody everybody agreed. People, people were on different sides, but everyone kind of agreed what the, what the conflict was about because it was within a very familiar framework of politics, it was, it was left-right class-based politics, and I think we don't have that today, and that's one of the reasons why things are so uh, visceral, so so personal, because we have shifted to identity politics. So now, w- w- which way you voted on whether to leave the EU, which on one level should be, I mean, you know, it's an important decision, it's going to change the future of the country, but, but in one way it's a highly technical thing, it's like, do we want to be part of this <coughs> supranational organisation or not, it's surprising that, and yet in surveys, people do feel very strongly identified with which side, much more than with, say, being a Labour or Tory voter. People, people feel much more strongly identified with Leave or Remain, whereas before the referendum was called, most people did not feel strongly about it either way. So this is, I mean, this is a really extraordinary thing, I think, but it's a sign that we experience politics as identity, as, as an expression of who we are, and once having taken sides on something and it becoming uh, a, a big issue then then that becomes very very central to who we are but this this makes it very difficult to have civil conversation and disagreement, partly because partly because we we feel as somebody else said, we feel that uh, any disagreement with our ideas is a personal attack on who we are, so it 's very difficult for us to separate our ideas from us, but also partly because we no longer have a common ground. We no longer have a shared perception of what the issues are, a a common language. Uh, We don't even have common ground rules. We've abandoned all sorts of procedural things about how parliamentary democracy works, but even the very basic principle of loser's consent, that you have a vote and you lose and you accept the result, seems to have been abandoned. And one of my great fears is that without simply agreeing some really basic ground rules about... How democracy works, how we mediate everybody's individual political will and everyone's iota of political power into enactment by the nation, state, or government, or whoever it is, then we're going to find it very difficult to have a civil disagreement, regardless of what words we use. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Right, so, uh, very good introductions, I think. Um, all sorts of things covered, and you you know, up to you what you want to pick up on and ask questions about, make points about. There's a kind of, there's a history thing on the table, and whether this is toxic, the whole idea of toxic is something new. Um, We've got kind of questions around about whether it's social media or some of the stuff that you were talking about at the end, about whether it's actually just the lack of a common framework. There's questions on identity politics. There's uh, are we lacking representation? There's the personalization stuff. Um, So it's over to you. Um, If you put your hands up uh, as high as possible, because it's quite difficult to see out there. Um, I'll come out. I'll take a round of about five questions to start with, come back to the panel. Uh, get you to pick up and things, then, it, then we'll come out again.
7: Hi, um, I just wanted to um, ask about representation, really, because um, I remember when the, there was the election and no one won, and the Lib Dems and um, Labour had to get together to form a coalition government. Um, and prior to that, we had the kind of David Ma- Miliband and Alastair Campbell real spin doctrine um, politics. Um, and then there was a kind of couple of days um, where all of a sudden, real politics was happening for a while and all the politicians had stopped the spin and they were just saying what they thought, particularly um, conservative (laughs) politicians. Um, But it really struck me, oh, my God, the spin's gone for a while and then obviously it didn't last very long. And um, the politicians have got to the stage where they say, look, or let me be clear. um, And all these words that they've learnt um, to say in interviews... um, that kind of spin them but they don't actually get to the point um and so when you listen to radio four you just have an interviewer barracking a politician who's trying to say look let me be clear and th- i'm driving to work in a real foul temper because <laughs> nobody's got anywhere but it struck me that it's got worse now and in question time particularly labor politicians i hate to say uh, are just talking over everybody and not even answering questions um so there was a really horrible question time I can 't remember the name of the woman now, Anna Subri, I think was it, um, who just kept talking and talking and talking and, and thought, if I fill up the time, then nobody's going to put me any, under any pressure, and I won't have to answer any questions. Um, so there is a toxic side, and I've been subject to it on Twitter and I 'm sure a lot of people have, um, but there, there's something going on that's also very kind of empty in terms of uh, representatives in my mind.
8: I, I've always been called a bit of a Rottweiler in debate, and I don't mind that, and I don't mind a heated debate or any sort of debate. And I've defended lots of academics with academics for academic freedom, and the one charge that's held against them today is lack of civility. Like you're not being polite, you're not using the right words. And that's become a, a feature of censorship. And when people are talking, you know, about the power of words and how you've got to be careful, and not James here, but what's the, the tendency will be that people will start censoring? And I'm quite happy with the, the, um, the heated debate, and I just think the stories of how people are obnoxious, when I listen to it on the Radio 4 or wherever, I just wish the other people would fight back and stick up for themselves a bit more and be a bit tougher and a bit ruder. So I would defend uh, a lack of civility in debate, because if you don't do that, you'll not end up by not defending free speech.
9: What what I really wanted to say was that um, what we actually saw in 2016 was an electrification of politics. Prior to uh, 2016, it was very dull what we were talking about. And the reason that I'm so confident that it's changed and it's considered as toxic is because people are fighting to examine what they think in the greater context of what you talked about, which is they can't find their voice in the standard way previously. And why I know that's true is because we've just been on a trip to France where we spoke, to, we were warned, please don't discuss Brexit with people because it will be very uncomfortable. So we edged our way there and we asked them, what, these French people, what do you think the EU has done for you? And they said, and this was their sole argument, well, it means that I can spend my money in Greece without having to change it in France. And what struck us was, that what actually has happened is 2016 is people are fighting with lots of new ideas and to make themselves heard, and we are not actually reiterating <coughs> banal ideas. We're trying to think, and as a consequence, politics mm. has become toxic. It's not really toxic, it's people just trying to make themselves heard.
1: Okay.
10: Yes, uh, this is a question to um, Deborah, because I was intrigued what she said about the Halle attack. So I'm from Germany, and um, I, I think I think it's quite a difficult uh, dilemma we're in, because I used to sort of propagate the sticks and stones thing too and say, you know, words are not deeds. Um, I could see a sort of toxicity coming uh, 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 coming up in Germany despite the really harsh Holocaust denial laws, On the other hand, um, so I I think all of that is probably wrong because some people are not just talking about you know it's it it isn't just words as you said. So there is this dynamic, but it seems to be an to me a no win situation because now we've got the government coming up with a nine plan which is massive censorship and i'm actually very very scared of what's happening so i think the german government is probably more censorious than probably any other government in europe at the moment and it's certainly not going to do any good so the question is what do we do would you agree we used to also be against law and order so maybe that's a way forward we used to say debating is important countering backward ideas i still believe in that very much but what about the other side um, you know, being a bit softer on law and order, I mean, harder, uh, uh, but, uh, but softer on the law and order side, saying we need to punish deeds much, much harsher, would that be a way forward?
1: OK, yes. And yes. I'm, g- I'm going to take this final one and come back to the panel, and then we're going to start with this guy here in the front when I come out next. So, yes.
11: Yes, thank you. Uh, Mike Buchanan, leader of the political party, Justice for Men and Boys. Um, I had the experience of being milkshaked before a talk I gave at Cambridge University six months ago. And the milkshakers, despite being identified, were, um, you know, didn't face prosecution. My question concerns um, a toxic broadcaster, the BBC. Everything it can present through a feminist lens, it does. Yet only one in 11 British women and one in 25 British men self-identify as feminists. Does the panel have any thoughts about the ideological corruption of the BBC?
1: Okay, so um, let's uh, try and pick some of these up. Um, I wonder uh, I wonder Jacob just come to you first maybe in, in, just in terms of this this question of, of kind of the, the I, I suppose the historical, Uh, continuation or otherwise of toxic and and civility i mean i i just wonder are there any is there anything from history that you can kind of bring to that bring to bear to that i mean i I remember one of your podcasts with um theresa bajan i think where she was talking about the idea of mere civility is you know how do you kind of uh how, how do you approach this question of civility
4: well, well i mean uh, i'm not british i don't i don't, I don't live here I, I follow british affairs relatively closely and and i can certainly sense that uh, that the things are very polarized uh, at the moment and, and and many people feel that you know, there's an intellectual civil war going on. But but still, you know, compared to, say, the 1790s, uh, I would think, uh, say, th- things are, are quite mild here. Uh, so if, in, in, so seven, in, in 1792, ni- 93, literally hundreds uh, of towns had burnings of Tom Paine in effigy. You had someone like Joseph Priest, Joseph Priestley, who was an eminent scientist, Unitarian. His, his house and, and lab was burned down by a mob in... In, in, in Birmingham, you had prosecutions of, of, of people who, you know, who wrote uh, pro-parliamentary reform uh, tracts uh, and so on. So I think, uh, you know, in, in my view, uh, uh, I think there has been made, uh, that progress has been made. And I think, uh, you, despite the polarization, I think uh, it, it seems to me that the British society is able... To withstand, uh, uh, you know, huge and deep differences, uh, uh, even even though it, that it, it might sometimes seem as if, you know, society is, is, is fraying at the at the edges. Um, is
1: it just a case of we need to toughen up a bit? I suppose is one of
4: the questions. I, uh, I, I th- you know resilience is 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 certainly uh, important. Uh, I think we also, you know, obviously when. You, the idea of just saying free speech solves everything does not make sense. We are, we also have to to look at ourselves, uh, I think, and I think civil society has has uh, so in the U.S., for instance, there 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 are these groups that bring together Republicans and Democrats uh, to have a conversation that and and, and uh, sort of to heal the wounds in, in 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 a way and and sort of to, to be able to 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 disagree. Uh, profoundly but without uh, resorting to the sort of empty sloganeering that that social media is, is very good at um, I, I just wanted to make a point also on 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 the on the uh, Germany thing but maybe I should go after Deborah
2: yeah. 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 Um, first of all I think there's a difference between free speech and incitement um, and uh, I saw that in my legal travails uh, that free speech is one thing. But if free speech is not, There are a group of ex-people over there and they should be beaten up, they have no right to be there. And then I walk away and they go get beaten up. That's, that's quite different. And it is a whole legal realm for, for differentiating there. So free speech is, stops at crying fire in a crowded theater. Free speech stops at treason. Free speech stops at incitement. Um, And that doesn't mean you can't debate vigorously, doesn't mean you can't have certain ideas, but if you incite someone to go do real harm, I think that there's a a difference there. Uh, Number two, and I was trying to find it on, but I couldn't log in, Um, I believe it was Emerson, uh, the American. uh, philosopher who said, um, foolish inconsistencies foolish are the hobgoblins of small minds and politicians. So as someone who just said, I firmly believe in free speech and I'm against laws ag- against Holocaust denial, I fully understand why a uh, Germany, I don't know, the, I haven't looked at the nine point plan, I know about the conversation about it. Uh, but I can understand why a Germany or an Austria or even a Poland would have laws uh, limiting holocaust denial uh, there are different situations, um, but uh, again, uh, I, to my mind it 's uh, where does the speech lead to in, in, lead to incitement, and we 've seen too much of that
1: Dolan, if, if I can bring you in because if I got the question right, i mean what what is is actually happening here is that we 're seeing. The the accusations of being toxic or incivility is actually pushing the boundaries further out and creating new reasons to constrain words. I mean, do you do you accept that and see it like that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. The Rottweiler points out that these accusations can be weaponized and that's certainly true. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I I don't think we should all go around saying this person used that word or that word, and that's a problem. And we should start, you know, logging these kinds of things and reporting. And that's definitely not not. My critique of toxicity, such as it is, is simply that we should reflect on our own um, uh, rhetoric and say, is, is, it, is it effective? Is it, is it working? You know, As someone with, with nothing but disdain but Lib Dems, I don't care if the Lib Dems turn into a, a silly t-shirt wearing party, but just thinking as a, as, as a kind of d- detached observer of politics, I think that's not, not really a healthy thing. I mean, anyone who went on, on a political demonstrations on the left in the 80s and 90s will remember a song, and I'll quote the words... We hate Tories, and we hate Tories. We hate Tories, and we hate Tories. We hate Tories, and we hate Tories. We are the Tory haters. <laughs> Does everyone remember that one? And um, I never found it particularly inspiring, I have to say. And, and the, the, the radical left behind that never really got anywhere, <laughs> uh, as you said. So the, the, uh, but it was very much identifying, we are, we are the haters. And there's, there's that kind of instinctive thing, that this is our kind of tribe. And they, you know, the, the whole radical left then was oriented towards people who thought of themselves as being socialists and said, well, come over to us. There was no kind of, here's what we think is wrong with society, here's what we want to change. We want persuade people who don't actually think of themselves as Tory haters. God forbid we might even convince a Tory to, to come over to our side. There was none of that. And if you don't have that kind of aspiration, then your rhetoric will reflect that, and it's empty. And I think that, that was on the fringes of politics at that time, and I think the fact that it's coming to the center is not yeah. a good thing.
1: On both the right and the left. Yeah. James, uh, anything to chip in on?
5: Well, I, I just remember being on one of those marches in the 1980s because, I, like many young people, I was a socialist when I was younger. And I, I don't remember singing that song, but what we chanted was Margaret Thatcher, Milk Snatcher. Because Mar- she, she got rid of um, school milk, um, which we all hated anyway in school, didn't we? Like, <laughs> congealed, warm milk, horrible. No, I, I liked what I think Dennis was saying there, you know, give as good as you get, man up. If people attack you, start civilly, we start politely. I love polite conversation as much as the next person. But if people start attacking you, then we've got to man up a bit. I don't know if you saw the um, that mansplaining incident with the Labour MP accusing the Green co-leader of mansplaining. Did you see that? It's a wonderful little clip where... Actually, I'm going to engage in some mansplaining now. She was, he he was not mansplaining. He was actually interrupting her when she'd been speaking for a while. He was interrupting her and talking politics, you know. Um, and but compare and contrast that. I saw an Aussie politician accused of mansplaining once by a, a journalist, and he just went in there and said, "Don't you dare use this," you know, blah, and, and attacked it. So I, I, I like what De- Dennis says. I think we we've, we've got to be more robust, you know. I I, I liked our a man from the. The, the the men's party and you know but you've got a very provocative t-shirt on there you know people are going to be provocative t-shirts. towards you you know you are people are going to be provocative and that's what you you want isn't it you want that and and people can do that the BBC should be privatised and subscription service only so that would solve that problem that would solve that problem and just finally then on. Yeah, this divide between free speech and incitement, I'm sure there is a legal definition, but my guess is, if any one of us was to shout fire in this auditorium, no one would move, and we'd only start moving when we smelt smoke.
1: Can I just come to you on this this, this uh, toughen up question? Because um, I don't think anywhere in your radio series there was uh, there, w- there wasn't a uh, episode on toughening up was there We, was, we didn't use the of, phrase kind up, no. which uh, suggests that you think there's something a little bit more to it than that and i i kind of i just wonder you know you can be as tough as you like and as manned up as you like but if you're kind of talking past each other and and kind of never really meeting then it it kind of that doesn't really make a difference does it or is there well, something no, more I mean, to it yeah i think, it, I, yeah, I, think
6: I think this is the thing i mean i would say we do need a more civil uh, political disagreement not because we should watch our words and not because we should be more polite but because we should genuinely be more respectful of people who disagree with us uh for, for a number of reasons uh and, and i think I, I mean i completely agree with you i think i think the concern with language is absolutely a way of trying to shut down debate and you know we should have no truck with that at all i, but I would much rather somebody use rude language to me but actually listen to my arguments and try to engage with my arguments and change my mind than that somebody was very polite to me and used polite words, but actually did not take seriously my opinions, uh, did not try and change my mind, uh, it, whether or not they talked over me, however they interacted with me personally. And this is, this is I think, what's crucial, because we are never going to, we're never going to get anywhere. We're never, in a democracy, the way you make change is to change enough people's minds that you have a majority on your side. Uh, And if you're not aiming to do that, then you don't really believe in democracy. And there are enough people around on right and left who clearly don't believe in democracy and they just want to get their own way by whatever means necessary. Uh, And that's totalitarianism and we should call it what it is. But but I think that a genuine respect for your opponents, you may disagree with their opinions, you may think their opinions are stupid and ill-informed and just wrong... Mm -hmm. But if you want to change their minds, you have to listen to them and find out why they think what they think and try and argue with them. And that's the only way you're going to get them to do the same to you. And even if you think you're never going to change their mind, there will be other people watching and listening who maybe are undecided, maybe more open to it, and maybe you can change their minds. OK,
1: so I'm going to come back out again. So I've got lots of hands waiting to speak. I'm going to start down here. If you can still stand up when you speak, and I'll work my way back. Okay, yes. Um,
11: Okay, so listening to the sort of opening remarks from the panel, I thought I heard two quite different framings of this toxic politics idea. And my question is basically, uh, well, two questions. Are we conflating these two things? Or if we're not conflating them then are they related? And if they're related, how are they related? So on the one hand, I'm hearing, you know, there is a kind of, if, if political disagreement gets bundled together with uh, matters of personal identity, then politics can turn toxic. And you know, everyone who disagrees with me is a Nazi, and it all gets very nasty and personal, and, and that's kind of amplified by social media. So there really is this thing of toxicity in, in political debate. And then on the other hand, The kind of the entry of of new people or or, or, uh, people into politics who are striving for some new form of representation, perhaps in uncivil ways or ways that don't uh, conform to rules of polite uh, debate. Always, and those people are often kind of dismissed or, or pushed out of the public sphere or seen as potentially dangerous, you know, the whole idea of kind of dog whistle politics and sending the wrong signals from the top with toxic language to um, these kind of dangerous masses. So are, are, there, you know, are those two really quite distinct things or are they related? And if they're related, then how are they related?
3: Okay.
0: Um, so, a comment which goes back to, to Mandra's first uh, contribution, and uh, nobody's referred as of yet to the concept of the Overton window, which uh, strikes me as quite important
11: here. Um, because isn't it the case that a lot of this toxicity is to do with the fact
5: that left and right have got different Overton windows? This relates to what it's accept- acceptable and unacceptable to see in public debate. So, isn't it a case of the fact that the left and right need to agree on an Overton window? But of course, um, it's worth bearing in mind that um, where people adopt a revolutionary mindset, uh, they don't give a damn about these things. Uh, and toxicity is, is fine under sort of pre-revolutionary or revolutionary conditions. So that's a bit of a, a caveat
12: in that regard. But the Overton window, it seems to me, is quite important. I'd like to speak in favour of uh, civility as, as a virtue, uh, nothing less but I think it's not to do with limitations on what you can say or what you can't say. And it's not really about how robust or how kind of weebly you are. And, uh, it's to do with where you stand and the position you stand in um, if you are serious about trying to win over and convince other other people. Um, and it, it's, a, it's very important um, that uh, society as a whole retains... Um, that attitude and the space in which to do it. I, I look at the, politi- when I can bear to, the politicians so-called that we have now, um, and it strikes me that's, that's the last thing they're trying to do. They're trying to speak to their own little tribe and kind of um, gee them up a bit, uh, or else they're trying to impose uh, their etiquette um, on people that they really don't think are intelligent enough to get it, but they just ought to behave that way. Whereas I think, I don't want to be too sucky-uppy, but um, the, the kind of, the form of this discussion is properly civil and properly political. Because what's happened during the course of the morning is that there is a, a space that's been created or a, a point of reference that we're all now addressing, which is above and beyond any of us in the audience and any of the people in the panel. Uh, it's otherwise known as a, a proper public space. Um, and when, when we're accountable to that, where we're measured uh, by that, um, you know, that's where civility uh, really thrives. And if our society as a whole loses the capacity to enter that impersonal, deliberately depersonalised space, we don't have civility, we don't even have politics that's worthy of the name.
1: Okay, thanks. If you could hand that back to Rose, and yes, um,
13: I, I don't. I don't tend to think of civility as an end in itself. Um, it's a sort of consequence, if you like, of a situation where um, people understand truth as a collective project. And I think it's been very interesting in the last few days looking at the whole Facebook debate, um, the advertising discussion, because it really strikes me that the way that discussion is framed is very much that truth is something that sort of resides in a bank somewhere and you go and take out a little bit of it. There's no sense that it's something that's a product of some kind of um, public dialogue. And I mean, I I don't care about debate in and of itself in the abstract. I care about it because I think it er allows us to arrive at something which is a better consensus and understanding about how we act and I think that's important it's not just debate for the sake of it it's because we want to act on it but in that light I would really like to know what all of the panel think about rationality because the thing that struck me over the last year is that um, people haven't accused me of being irrational when they've disagreed with me they've accused me of being rational as if it's some <laughs> kind of dirty word um, okay, and you. And I think you know, Bruno Latour argues, who's sort of the, one of the philosophers of our age, that actually politics is now about the pursuit of freedom from fear. Um, and so I think that the territory has shifted quite a long way. And in fact, the argument for reason seems to me to be central to the argument for civility. You can't really separate the two things.
14: I wanted to come back to um, an earlier point made about... Uh, the context for the for the lack of civility being a problem of representation and the crisis of mediation, and I wanted to ask the panel to um, focus a bit more on what on what, on what they meant by the crisis of mediation, because when I compare the politics um, of the 80s uh, to now, uh, it seems as if one of the really key features is that there's just this huge gulf between. Um, the people who who, who rule and the people who are governed, and there's just no real uh, conversation um, or um, belts of transmission of ideas between, um, you know, the establishment here and people over here. Um, And that makes the whole debate going on at the moment around um, social media and political adverts on Facebook and um, Twitter um, quite important, and again, we haven't, we haven't really discussed that, but as, as everyone probably knows, there's a, an attempt to close down uh, political adverts o- on Facebook because social media is deemed to be so uncivil, so out of c- control, uh, full of trolls, um, where people are being fed the wrong ideas and voting the wrong way. So uh, I'd, I'd like to, if we could go back to that, because it seems to me that if we can understand how society has changed, then we might um, be able to do something about the problem of, uh, of politics and civility.
1: Okay, thank you very much. So, yes.
14: So just a
0: short point, really. Um, I agree that th- we do have to be more resilient and to push back when people maybe put insults at us or maybe accuse us of something in order to censor us. However, if we just descend into trading insults, surely the same effect is achieved that party who's trying to silence us has just made us go down this path which no longer tackles the issue by simply reducing the debates to an argument and exchange of insults. So surely the best way is to maybe call it out, call it what it is, you're just trying to stop me talking, but then rising above it so that the issue can be dealt with appropriately. Okay, so I personally don't think that political language has become more toxic. So if you look at, for instance, I think Jean-Jacques Rousseau said um, we will not rest until the last aristocrat has been strangled with the guts of the last priest. <laughs> and if you uh, if you look at later things like uh, the early labour movement or the revolutions of of 1848 and so on, you'll find incredibly combative political language. So what I think what might have changed is the idea of expertocracy. So we have we used to have the idea that there are conflicts of interest in society and they sort of play out and. What we have now is maybe the idea that experts can objectively determine what is right for society. So if we then, we still have conflicts of interest, so we have uh, people in rural France who object to climate policies coming from Paris, or we have people rejecting being a member of the EU in the UK. So maybe that leads to a special kind of polarized reaction because we've departed from the idea that there are conflicts of interest and we see it as people are spurning the advice of experts so maybe that's why politics feels so toxic and polarized. Okay,
1: so I know there's lots of hands still, I'm going to come back to my panel starting with James and Tamandra and come along for kind of quick responses to some of these things because I want to come out and get everyone else in. So. Um, James, do you want to kick us off? uh, Yeah, Uh, so so I I, I
5: like the summary of the two two types of toxic politics. I think, from from the very first question, I think actually your first... I obviously agree with your first summary of it and I don't think they're related would be my answer I, I was very interested in this mention of the Overton window which of course I'm a great expert on and have deep insights into the Overton window but perhaps we can talk afterwards what this, <laughs> what this thing is but you were talking about left and right disagreeing in different ways and it's more acceptable and, and would the answer be that at the moment in the, those terms <laughs> left and right left have more uh, more room for manoeuvre, whereas the right doesn't. In public debate, I think that that would be. I, I would probably agree with that. Um, yeah, uh, civility. I love civility. You know, don't, don't ever get me wrong. I'm not. You know, I think civ- civil debate is the right thing. But if people start laying into you, then you've got to be able to stand up to that. And and actually, I just just in the previous session, there was this talk about the electrification of politics, and we, no one answered that. I don't think. But I, I think. the one good thing Brexit has done is let you see who your real friends are, hasn't it? Yeah, I I am really proud, actually, of my family, you know, my extended family, 25 of us siblings, you know, nieces, nephews, blah, blah, blah. We have not come to blows over Brexit. We've nearly come to blows, but we never have. And that, you know, electrification is really good, isn't it, that we actually now know. I will not see some people again because they don't like my views, but that's good, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs>
6: okay, I'm going to try. Uh, lots of good things there, but to be brief, I want to pick up on the particular questions about uh, Facebook political ads, social media, because uh, obviously this is, you know, an area that I look at a lot. I think I think the idea that social media has made things more toxic is misleading. I I think it's you know it's a case of confusing the the medium with with what's happening. Um, there's no doubt that the format of things like Twitter means that a quick, irritable response is very easy. Let me tell you, there's nothing forces you to be civil and reasonable on Twitter like having made a radio series telling everybody to disagree. Better, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it's it's very tiring sometimes having to be reasonable, engage with people in a reasonable way every time in 140, sorry, 280 characters. Uh, but. But I think this, I- I mean, this idea that Facebook should ban political adverts because there have been misleading and influential political adverts and because they are micro-targeted at individuals, I think is, is absolutely part of this idea that the majority of people are stupid and easily led and if they see an advert that's targeted at them individually through some magical algorithm that somehow sees into their mind uh, is absolutely a reflection of the really low opinion that... Uh, that some people have of voters which ironically is just a complete mirror image of the low opinion that the politicians and the campaigners who pay for the ads also have of voters that instead of engaging with us in a rational way with arguments they go oh well we, we don't really know what these people think anymore but look hey we can we can use algorithms to to find out and we can put together loads of consumer data most of which they've given up perfectly legally and innocently through other routes and we can get this database which tells us kind of how old they are and what they're interested in what kind of things they buy and how many children they have and blah 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 and we can target them with an advert and we can even see how many people click through on this advert so we can see how effective it is and uh, and that's how it works and all the other stuff about psychometry is nine-tenths smoke it's it's really not magic but the the idea that that's the way to engage with the masses in politics is really insulting. But the idea that we are all being mind-controlled by this stuff is equally insulting. So I, I think the idea that what you do to mend politics is ban political ads on Facebook uh, betrays as low opinion of voters as the people who place the, uh, the untruthful, misleading, micro-targeted adverts in the first place.
2: So. Anything that any of you want yeah, to pick Well, up I just, on I want to dissent a little bit there because, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg may be very smart in creating a program which was essentially, initially designed to rate the women at certain colleges and then has turned into this major internet and social media uh, giant, which is even the wrong word. But there have been ads that are just straight out lies. and. Um, the idea of free speech, at least in the United States, the First Amendment. The first word of the First Amendment is "Congress shall." Congress, which is interpreted as government, shall make no laws limiting free speech. Uh, last time I checked, uh, though, free, though Zuckerberg may think other words wise. Facebook is not a government arm, so if it's, it has been used to overtly manipulate, to tell outright lies, in fact, Elizabeth Warren, who might disagree with many things, but tested it by telling, by putting an ad there that was completely untrue, and she said the ad is untrue, and of course, they took it. I don't think that that really uh, furthers the, the conversation. That's point one. Point two, it seems to me, and again, I'm the foreigner here, um, but... <laughs> civil debate and personal attacks. The toxicity that I'm talking about, you know, again, when a president calls someone who disagrees with him human scum um, and things far worse than that, that's that's toxic and that's not vigorous debate vigorous debate, please bring it on. You know, I come from a household where um, Friday night table was a vigorous debate, you know, uh, and, and we debated everything and anything. Um, and I think it should be vigorous and not, but it should not engage in um, things, and I keep repeating that, okay. there are many other terms, calling, calling those with whom you disagree human scum. That's toxic.
1: Okay, Jacob. Anything? Just very quickly, yeah. I want to come yeah. back. Yeah. Out
4: no, of I, I also think we need uh, a bit of perspective and also to adjust our uh, um, expectations based on on the platform. I would argue that never in the history of humankind have you been able to access, um, you know, more thoroughly researched and great greatly debated pieces of, of, of content. You know, there are great uh, online magazines out there that that cater to, to very spe- specific audiences and brings out arguments that you would never hear uh, before that are available for free and where you have great debate. Uh, and I think, you know, that is something that we should Keep in mind and appreciate uh, that that was not uh, the the case uh, 15 or 20 years ago. But also, I think we should, we, you know, Twitter is not representative of reality or you know public debate as it as it as it plays out in uh, everywhere. And so 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 you know we should not think of. You know the trolls on on Twitter being representative of of uh, of, of general uh, society. So uh, so so maybe we should also keep a bit of, of distance. Uh, you know, uh, saying you know, okay, the trolls may may dominate uh, Twitter threats after five minutes, but but they are not representative. There are, are actually every day people who have very uh, meaningful. Uh, debates, and you know, depending on what platform you are on, you should adjust your expectations on the level of civility that you will
3: uh, that you will encounter
1: just seems like we should find the off button sometimes, actually.
3: Um, yeah, I think someone mentioned this idea of um, people looking for new forms of representation, and that, and, and that might be something to do with toxicity. And Jacob also mentioned earlier on the idea that when new voices come into the public sphere, then they're often disdained and seen as um, problematic. And it's, I think that's certainly true historically. I'm not sure I recognise that in the current situation, um, I, I, because I, if, if, if for no other reason the, the, much of the tox, toxic language is coming from people who are already in the mainstream, you know, and, uh, you know, President Trump is not a, a, a marginalized outsider who's come into politics. He, 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 like he, he does. He, he, he has a particular manner and he obviously has a particular audience for that. But it's not about a, a new constituency with a new program. I mean, even the, the stuff about um, aristocrats and priests. Um, of course, there was robust language, but the French Revolution did have an agenda. I mean, it's not like it was it, just empty frustration about these, these people. And um, there's a political agenda there, and I think that, that's, that's kind of what's missing um, now. So when I talked about the, the, uh, the, the, the demographic with commentary commentariat not being politically representative. I think maybe the miraculous thing is that it ever was, that you could take a narrow section of society in terms of social class and so on, and they would be politically representative. Um, and I think that a large part of that in the 20th century was the emergence of the Labour Party, which did, you know, previous before that, the establishment had been very much uh, a conservative and of a, 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 the ruling class and so on. And, and the Labour Party changed that by having an, an agenda and bringing people in and although talk, you know it was class politics, there was the working class versus the bosses, um, work, working class conservatives and uh, middle class socialists were very much part of, of the political landscape. And that, that was, the point was that, yes, there was a demographic base to politics, but you could transcend that because you thought, actually, I think these ideas are going somewhere. That, that's what I want to be associated with. Or, or I reject this despite the fact that it's supposed to be for my demographic. That, for me, is real politics, and I think it's what we're lacking. Yeah, okay, very useful,
1: thanks. So I'm going to try and get everyone in in this last round of questions. We're going to have to be quite quick. Can we bring the microphone sort of over here? There's a cluster of four people in the middle.
8: I was wondering what the panel thought
15: uh, about the idea that uh, this sort of political intransigence and toxicity is created at least on the lower levels by people who, on both sides, uh, are very passionate, very extreme, but lack sort of substance and evidence to their ideas. And so both sides, on both sides of the spectrum... Uh, of politics end up shouting past each other and resorting to shouting and an ad hominem attacks because there is no evidence to refute.
1: Yes. Okay. There's a lady behind you. Yes. And then we'll come over here. Yes.
15: Yeah, I think Dolan's last point was really important, which is what is the point of politics? Because the, the, the thing at the moment is that because we don't know in the centre of things what the point of it is, it leaches into every other area of life. So in schools... You know, if you, I've got children in schools, and it's everywhere. <laughs> They're continually bombarded with a particular line of politics. If you go to a conference on health, people are talking about uh, white... You know, people apologise for being a white man when they speak. Or you go to see your doctor and they've got an LGBT lanyard on them. So it's everywhere, and, and it's very... So where is the proper pace... For politics to exist i mean we're clearly disappointed in the house of commons and the house of lords but how do we confine it to wednesday night (laughs) or saturday morning uh, as opposed to absolutely everywhere because that's the thing you can see with people on social media is people that i professionally would connect with on social media to you know communicate about work they then also are sharing all their political allegiances and then i i don't know what to do because i i have to just ignore that because I, I can't say what i would want to say and i don't really know what i would want to say on all the stuff that's kind of piling through every single day so how do we put politics back in its box almost and, and create some boundaries around it that can give it back some dignity as something that has a sense of purpose and actually demands a certain level of seriousness and demands a certain level of, um, of of being able to work through proper evidence, proper ideas, proper principles rather than just, as somebody I think said around here, just pluck, cherry picking the things that work for you and just kind of bring you some
16: cheers from your camp.
1: Okay, thanks very much. That microphone can go right up to the back.
16: And yes. Can I just draw a line through a couple of things that so Deborah started with the word that begins with words. Um, I think we've moved past the words and I want to I asked the panel to comment on a couple of things that Dolan and Timandra said. Because Dolan introduced this concept of representation and really we're talking about universal suffrage there and there being no rules around giving people the vote. There weren't any conditions when you were given the vote. You weren't told you had to read this, you had to do that. You were actually being given this precious gift where somebody then had to persuade you to give them that vote. I think we've lost a little on that, and we've lost it, and I you want to come to the Tamandra point. The words have moved to actions in terms of democracy over the withdrawal of consent. We all had different views about Thatcher in the 80s, but we accepted the result. You might have hated her, but she won the election with mid-30s, and Tony Blair won the election with mid-30s. And you have a vote in this country where over 50% of the population win and then another side is withdrawn consent. I think that's the real toxicity in politics, not what you call people.
1: Okay, can you just hand the mic to that guy? And then I'll come up to the back.
3: Yes, go on. Um, I would like to ask the panel's opinion about the link between radicalism and toxicity. Because a prime
4: example for that is like the idea that the system is entirely broken and it, the system doesn't need fixing. The system, whatever, however one defines the system, needs tearing down and we need to reshuffle
5: all the cards. So my, my question is, can someone really be a radical without
4: eventually getting into toxicity?
17: Um, my point was the Boris Johnson uh, comment where he wrote an article um, defending people's right to wear whatever they like. Um, And obviously he was comparing that to European countries where there are laws that people with religious faiths can't wear certain garments. Um, And that became very toxic. And obviously the main thrust of his argument was that people in this country should be free to wear whatever dress they like, whether it's for religious reasons or others. Now he used a certain phrase, the letterbox phrase, which then the press ran with that because perhaps it was a very uncivil way of describing wearing religious clothes to the extent that, you know, I've spoken to friends and things and they all have no idea that the argument was that, you know, you should be free to wear what you want, that actually in various parts of Europe there are places where they do actually legislate against that. But because he used that phrase of language, the press completely ignored that. And so in the public perception you have this idea that, you know, Boris Johnson just thinks that people that wear religious clothes look like lesser foxes. And I think, you know, often that's what happens when we have too toxic a debate.
1: Yeah, so I think it was interesting, that whole article, though, that he, he made a very, uh, you know, plain-speaking argument. And in many ways, the, the, the people that made it into a toxic argument were the people that actually complain also about toxicity. So it kind of flipped the whole thing round. But yes, right at the back. And then, am I missing anyone? Is there any final hands no right right at the back and then i'll come back to the panel
13: um so the real toxicity that i see is not whether or not we are civil it's this creation of fear fear to even speak or engage for fear of the consequences um there's been lots of talk about how we need to toughen up and fight back and be louder but i wonder if the conflation of what happens on social media and our professional lives has caused people to remain quiet So how can we encourage people to fight back and be more vocal when they have very valid fears of not only being ostracized from their peers, but actually being fired from their jobs or being rendered unemployable due to saying the wrong thing or having the wrong political view? And what can we do to fight back against companies using social media as grounds for terminating employment? Or should we fight back against that?
1: Okay, thank you very much, and for, to everyone who, uh, for all those points and questions. So I'm going to come back uh, for some final comments from my panel. Should we just run along, starting with James, I think? just James, just a, a minute for us. Okay. Um, pick up on anything that you want yeah. to, um, and just, uh, you know, closing yeah. remarks.
5: Two other questions. One was on evidence. And do we do we have evidence? And you know, uh, w- what I find really disturbing about current debates is, is often there is evidence there, sometimes even in the article or book that's uh, be, that is being uh, announced, and yet someone says the opposite. For example, I'm reading a book on that white privilege, I mentioned earlier. This person is saying white privilege leads to ethnic underachievement in schools, and the table she gives to show that shows the white British are coming third or fourth from the bottom, Asians... Black Africans higher. Everyone's higher than the white British, and yet, so she ignores her own evidence. That is very disturbing. But this last point about fear is is very, very important. I said a word in my introductory remarks, which I've been really worrying about ever since. Thinking, will I get fired for saying that word? You know, uh, literally true. I mean, I'm worried about one of the words I said. You, thankfully, you've forgotten it, Um, (laughs) but it's on camera. (laughs) And, And you know, and that is terrifying, isn't it? That. You know, I'm a professor at university. Now I'm at the University of Buckingham, which, as you all know, is the free speech capital of uh, England. Um, But nonetheless, even in that context, and certainly had I been at Newcastle University, where where I've been for the last 20 years, um, I would be worried. But presenting here and what happens tomorrow morning.
1: Thanks, James.
6: Uh, Well, to draw together a a few points, I think... And people have been really saying this from the audience and and on the panel. I, I think the really toxic thing is when you try and close <coughs> down debate. And people have given different event, it, examples of this, including people literally uh, being threatened with losing their jobs because of sometimes literally words they've used on social media, uh, which yeah is a, is a terrifying prospect. Really, it's completely Maoist or Stalinist, however you like to describe it. Uh, and but also. Closing down debate by talking over people, uh, by, and, and I think it's very telling, this, this fact, that sometimes people who are so unused to having to argue their case that they do not know how to argue against someone who disagrees with them... Uh, and that's why they talk over people and try and shut them down rather than engage in an argument. Uh, but this is obviously a circular problem, because if you never have to argue your corner, you're never going to be able to make a coherent argument for your opinions. And therefore, your instinct is going to be constantly to, to shut them down one way or another. So, so to kind of come back to this, this very useful uh, distinction between is toxic politics about new voices coming into politics and wanting to shake things up and someone else saying, you know, does radicalism inevitably lead to a kind of toxicity? Because if you're trying to tear the system down, obviously that's going to become uncivil in one way or another. Uh, and this other uh, framing, which is that if you identify too closely with your ideas, if you see a disagreement as a personal attack, that's inevitably going to make it toxic. Uh, I, I think they are two different things, uh, but but they are related in the sense that if you actually want to change the system and tear it down, which I think you know is clear there's really overdue. We need a new system that can actually accommodate different voices and, and a different, different political disagreements, and so we need that, but in order to do that, we do have to let go of a sense that, because I am a woman or whatever, that I am entitled to a, to a certain point of view which you cannot contest because yeah. you're not a woman. We need to agree common ground on which we can disagree.
1: Okay, thanks, Jacob.
4: Yeah, um, well, I think you know when two two billion people have access to the same social media platform, two billion people from across the world, different cultures, uh, and so on, we're never ever going to be able to uh, agree on a narrow uh, definition of civility, uh, simply because. You know what I hold very dear is going to be uh, deeply offensive to the deepest beliefs of, of of someone else. So, so I think that's that's just a given. If we do want that that kind of uh, of, of of public sphere, which I think tends, I think the advantages uh, outweighs the disadvantages uh, of that. At the same time, that also I think requires of us that if we want to engage in in debate on on these platforms. We, we have to be uh, robust. And also, I, I, think, I think one key element is to not, uh, to, interpret, to interpret the ideas of, of, of those you would debate with in the most charitable light possible. There's, because there's so much context that can, can that that can go awry. But if you if you adopt the most charitable uh, interpretation of someone's arguments, rather than immediately yourself sort of uh, in, uh, adopting the, the the least charitable um, uh, interpretation, then you actually have a chance of of things not uh, delving into ad hominem uh, attacks uh, in the first three rounds. Maybe only the round 8 or 10. Thanks, Jacob. uh, I'll be
2: very brief, and again, I may not be entirely popular with everyone, but A, words count, which I think we all agree on. Uh, B... Um, uh, regarding what people say on social media. There have been cases where people present one front when they go to a, apply for a job, and then when people look on social media and finds that there's a whole other aspect to this person that they don't want in, their, in, the, in, in terms of what they've said or what they've done or the points they've taken. I'm not talking that when they were in sixth form they said something. I mean, that's ludicrous, but in recent times. And finally, while I don't believe that... Anybody should get a job or should not be disagreed with because they're um, a woman or gay or whatever it might be. But I do think we have to recognize that for too many years that women, gays, Jews... Uh, people of color, etc., etc., et cetera, were not listened to or were, were cast aside because they were women, gay, Jews, or whatever. So sometimes a corrective comes and it goes too far, which I think is in many of the cases now. But let's not lose sight of what was an original problem.
1: Okay, Dolan. Um,
3: yeah, I think briefly I would just characterize some of what we're talking about as a, 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 a kind of a reversion to an honor culture an honor culture where insults are intolerable and have to be avenged. Um, and you see that in everything from Donald Trump's supporters online who will attack anyone who criticizes him. You know, especially conservatives who criticize him, they will attack viciously. Um, to, on the other hand, trans activists who insist that any questioning of their ideology is tantamount to violence and cannot be tolerated. Um, I think that this is a kind of, uh, a, 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 it, 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 it's a kind of r- culture which makes makes debate impossible. And I think the response is to, to reassert uh, a dignity culture, which is, you know, where if you insult my mother, then I don't feel the need to insult your mother because I just recognise you made yourself look bad and everyone else can see that. And that's, that's, that's the genuine political culture.
1: Thanks, Dolan. Um, I really like the idea of the impersonal space that came from somewhere up here. And I think... Uh, battle of ideas is hopefully uh achieves that quite a lot but hopefully it's a small step in the way to a kind of reconstruction of public man which i think would be a very worthwhile uh, achievement um so uh, i just want to thank uh, all our panel uh, can we thank them
0: thank you for listening to hear more of our podcasts and subscribe to them visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast.